The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Scripture that we're going to look at this morning is going to come, or comes from Colossians chapter 1. But before I read that, I want to remind you that we're in the middle of a series on the, and going through the Apostles' Creed, that we have said within this series each week that I have no intention of preaching the Creed to you each and every week, but my intention is to preach God's Word to you, using the Creed as a means to get us there, as a means to understand it. That the creed in and of itself has no power or authority, that it is subordinate uh, to God's word. And so we come to it and it finds its only meaning as a reflection of God's power through his word to us. That we look at the creed for opportunity to correct and to develop spiritual discernment and uh, formation in our own lives. We've said and are indebted to Matt Chandler and to those at a village church in Texas, that the creed also brings about balance, symmetry, that we understand things, that it counsels us in our own lives, that it defines and enlightens our community in which we live, and it clarifies certain things that the scriptures mention. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you now to stand as we have each week and to say with me, you can stand, I'm at a train, Stand, I mean, yeah, so uh, one of these weeks I'm going to say, now stand and see what happens uh, on that. But when we stand in this, you are simultaneously stating your allegiance to God, of saying this isn't just what I know, it's not I know these things, but I believe these things. And you are defying the principles and the powers of our culture, which say that you should believe another creed of secularism, a creed of materialism, a creed of humanism in this life. You're saying, no, this is what I believe. And so, Christian, around the world today, this question is being asked, and I'd ask it to you. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we're going to be looking at the statement, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, and the last two words, our Lord. Looking at this lordship of Christ, the authority that Christ has as king and lord within the life of the believer, but a broader sense of understanding his kingship even over all of creation. And the text that we're coming to this morning uh, to learn these things is from Colossians, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. Looking in chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you uh, to read along. Otherwise, it's on the screen for you. This is the very word of the Lord. 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. The Bible has a radical, earth-shaking message about Jesus Christ. It says that Jesus Christ is not merely a human being, not merely a famous religious teacher, but the Lord of the universe. That message has profound implications for everyone living on the face of the earth. It has implications especially for what we think, for the life of the mind. It has implications not only for individuals, but also for society. Vern Poitras, pastor, theologian, and scholar at Westminster Theological Seminary, wrote those words. You see, there is a tension within the church of those who would say, well, Jesus Christ is my Savior, but I'm not sure I would consider him my Lord. That I have him and I have, as you were, my fire insurance. I know that I'm going to go to heaven, but it doesn't really have any impact on me throughout the course of my life. The most difficult funerals that a pastor can ever be asked to do is the funeral of an individual who has lived the totality of their life showing no signs of any sense uh, of redemption within their life, no signs of anything that would remotely uh, be Christian, no attendance in church, uh, no life within the Spirit, nothing. But yet the family comes at death and says, oh, but when they were nine, they walked the aisle. When they were 13, they had an experience with Jesus at a camp, so I'm sure they're in heaven. You see the tension within that. Oh, I got my fire insurance when I was young, and I've got that in my back pocket. I've got it put in a safe place. Now, I'm going to live my life however the heck I want to live my life. And then at the end of the day, Jesus, I still don't really want you to be my Lord, but I still need you to be my Redeemer, my Savior. Attention within that. Some have called that the nominal Christian. I'm not sure that's even a true term. I don't know that there's anything nominal in Christianity. And so what we're going to look at this morning is what does it mean that Jesus is our Lord? For you see, in order for you to say that in the plural, our Lord, you have to first say it in the singular, my Lord. That you have to say, he is my Savior, yes, but my Kyrios, my King, my Sovereign, my Lord. And I serve him, I bow the knee to him Only He is the one who has supreme authority within my life. And then collectively, he is our Lord, our Kyrios of the church. But what we're going to see, taking one step back, he's also the Lord of all of creation. But most particularly, 
the Savior King of his own people. And so we're going to look at a few things. If you talk to somebody from the first service, they'll say, yeah, Bill gave us nine reasons uh, why we should serve Christ as King. And you'll go, really? He gave us four. Well, I'm giving you four because nine was too many. Uh, So we're doing four in the second service today. If you want the other five, I'll give them to you later. Um, But it's such a massive consideration this morning. But I am going to give and look at four reasons why uh, we should follow Christ as King, Lord. Some considerations that there is going to be opposition to the following of Christ as King within our world. What is the source then of the power that we can gain in order to accomplish uh, the task that we've given, the role that we've given, the life that we've been given in him? And then looking at a few application points before we come and have together this meal of the Lord's Supper of our king, our sovereign, unlike any other king and sovereign in all of the history of humanity, coming and saying this, I will save my people by dying in their place. What a unique king and sovereign he is, and we are invited to his table this morning. And so the first thing that we're going to see is that Christ is the universal Lord. He is the Lord of all things, and it is incredibly important for you, be it if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, or you're one who is here this morning and you are interested in these things or you're investigating these things, to know this truth. It's important to know who you are dealing with. When I was in college, I had a good friend, a fraternity brother, uh, whose father was the CEO of Flowers Bread Company out of Thomasville, Georgia. And Mr. Varnado was a big man. Big Heath was what we uh, were able to call him because he allowed us to call him Big Heath. But Mr. Varnado one day was at Presbyterian College in the summertime when I was there with his son, Little Heath, and we decided to go on a road trip. And we went up to the Flowers Bread Store uh, just outside of Spartanburg. And we walked into the Flowers Bread Store there in Spartanburg. And there was a sweet lady behind the counter. And the store was a mess. And Mr. Varnado, who's a big man, walked in and he started rearranging the loaves of bread. And checking the dates on them and putting them on the shelves. And he walked around behind the counter and started to do some things. And this sweet lady looked at him and said, exactly who do you think you are? He said, I'm your boss. She said, I've never met you. You can't be my boss. And he pulled out his card, and it said CEO of Flowers Bakery. She went, oh, (laughs) please, have at it. She all of a sudden realized who she was talking to. And it was fun. He was just messing with her a little bit. But it's the same way in our lives. When you're dealing with God, when you're dealing with Christ, it is imperative for you to know whom you are dealing with, that he is not one of many, that he isn't on a slate, he's not on the ticket for you to choose whether or not he gets to be king, he is king de facto. And what we have to do is decide whether or not we will recognize him as king. That's our role. Not to, not to make him king not to vote him into king, not to protest in the streets if we don't like him as king, not to change parties along the way, not to do anything else other than to say, you're king. I'm going to serve you or I'm not going to serve you. I'm going to come in and be a part of your kingdom or I'm going to be one who stands against you. 
And so we see first and foremost that Christ is the universal Lord. For by him all things were created. How many things were created? All things. In heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things. How many things? All things were created through him. He is the agent of creation. And for him. And he is before all things. That means he is above all things. And in him all things hold together. Incredible little pronoun study you could do in those couple of verses. Who is the him? Him is Christ. Christ is the agent of creation. Christ is the one who called all of creation into being. He is the Lord of everything visible and invisible, thrones and authorities and powers, everything that is and has been and will be. He is sovereign over all of them. They were created through him as the agent, for him. They are for him. And he holds all things together. He holds a place of preeminence within the world. He is the Lord of both the Christian and the non-Christian. The Christian is the one who has at least acknowledged that. The non-Christian will find that out one day. And sadly, that won't be a good day. For you see, Christ, the King, came into the world in a way uh, that was maybe confusing to the world, for he took on flesh and blood. And it said that there was nothing particularly special about him, that men looked upon him and discarded him, uh, that he was nothing in that. And so they thought, this can't surely be him. But yet through his life, through his ministry, through his work on the cross, where he came and he said, I have now dominion over even the last enemy, death. And I am now raised and I am seated and ascended into heaven that I am the true king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And those many who were around him, who knew him and now through all uh, the rest of history, those who have believed by the power of the spirit to change their hearts, to see him for who he truly is, have bent the knee, given their allegiance to him and said, I find my life in you and in no one else. I renounce all the claims of every other king upon my life. I renounce my allegiance to them all, and I lay down, if you would, in this picture, I lay my sword to you, for I am yours. Do with me as you would for the rest of humanity. He is still king. They just haven't recognized it yet. You see, Christ is the king of all things. He is the Lord over all things creation. And so if you're here today and you don't know that, I want you to leave here today at least knowing that. Of with whom you are dealing. He is no secondary deity. He is no little idol set on a shelf, but he is the king of the universe, the Lord of lords with all power and glory and dominion in and of himself. Self-existent before all time, existing until all time will end. That is the king. And when he walks onto the floor at halftime, the cheers will never end. He's the Lord of all creation. But within that, this passage says that he is the Lord particularly of the Christian. 
You see, the Christians have been transferred from one dominion to another dominion. You realize everyone is being ruled. You are within a kingdom. It just matters which kingdom you're in. Are you in the kingdom and the dominion of darkness, or are you in the dominion and kingdom of the sun? For God says he transferred his children from one dominion to the other. And for the Christian, you have been transferred. You have been taken by God out of one dominion and set in another dominion. Isn't that awesome? And you know what the basis of that was? You look really good today. You attended church. You didn't cuss last night. You didn't get drunk. You don't have premarital sex. You don't have extramarital sex. You don't lie. You don't cheat. You don't do all of those things. You drive the speed limit most of the time unless it's just necessary to do otherwise you're just a good person and that's why God looked and went I'm so lucky to have you be in my kingdom so I'm going to take you and put you over in my kingdom and I'm going to leave all the rejects over here for Satan he's got the B team he's got all the poor kids who didn't get picked at Red Rover uh, over here but I got all the best ones that's not it at all He looked within this dominion and said, none have any merit in and of themselves, but my rich mercy and grace, I will take from it some. And I will move them based on my merit and the merit of my beloved son and move them into my son's kingdom so that they will recognize my sovereign grace in all of these things for it means it has no bearing on who they were. You recognize that we're all equally lost and in Christ we are all equally saved and brought into his kingdom and so he is the Lord of this kingdom the Lord as it were the head of the church verse 18 says there he is the head of the body the church and we his children are called his servants bond slaves is what Paul described himself as Paul a servant a slave doulos of Christ Jesus Romans 1, 1, 1 Corinthians 7, 22, 22, he who was free when called is a bondservant now of Christ. A bondservant describes one who was legally bound to serve their masters until their release. Human servants, you understand, suffered. It was different from American slavery. That's not what this has in mind. Uh, this was indentured servanthood. To where after a time you would be freed. And there were good masters and there were bad masters. And it's saying here though, but you've been transferred into a different mastership. You're still a slave, you're still a servant, but of a perfect and a great king. And the extent of your service, how far does it go you may be asking. Okay, that's cool, I get to go and be in the dominion of Christ. I'm under his rule and authority. What are the expectations on me? How far do his expectations go? Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be part of my kingdom. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first consider the cost, is what he says. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14. Here's the beauty of my job. I didn't say that. So if you don't like that, you can argue with the guy who did. And that was Christ who said this, in my kingdom, my allegiance and your allegiance to me 
supersedes even your allegiance to those earthly relationships that you have, the deepest, most intimate ones of even in your family. And before you say, hey, I want to be a part of that, he says, consider the costs. Consider for a moment what it's going to mean, and here's what it's going to mean for you in your life to follow and be a part of this king's kingdom all of your life, not just this hour or so that we have together, but every moment of every waking day that you have is his. You see, the follower of Christ must be a follower all the time, not some of the time. Secularism says this, fine, go to church on Sunday, proclaim your allegiance to Christ, just don't let that leak into the rest of the week. Operate your business however you want to operate it. Live within your earthly relationships however you want to live them. Take care of your money however you want to take it. Do whatever you want to do however you want to do it. Just make sure that Christ has no place in that. And sadly, the American church has said, that's a pretty good agreement. But that's not what the scriptures say. The follower of Christ must be a follower all the time. No wife or husband gets to pick and choose what parts of the day they're going to be obligated to their marriage vows. And if you're married to a person who does, please seek help, honestly. For you don't get to say as a husband, not feeling it today, babe. Taking the ring off. I'm going to go out, I'll see you. The wife doesn't get to say, not feeling it today. A parent doesn't get to say to a child, just not feeling it today, don't want a parent today. An adult doesn't get to say, I don't want to adult today. You ever had one of those days you just don't want to adult? We don't have that freedom. We have to adult because we're adults. And the same as a follower of Christ, we don't get to say, I don't want to be a servant of the king today. He says, you're always that. You see, if it's true within every other human relationship, then how much more true should it be within the spiritual relationship between a Christian and the true king? You see, God in Christ is the king over all things. He is the universal Lord, first thing. That's why we should follow him. That's why we should serve him, because that de facto, we could literally stop right there. But that doesn't really lead and touch necessarily on the heart. But the beauty of the scriptures is this. Yes, that is true. And yes, that maybe should be enough to motivate you to come and to bend the knee before the true king of the universe. But there's also these other things. He says this. Another reason to follow this king is his worthiness. Worthy is the lamb. You see, there was a dilemma, as it were, in heaven when John went and saw what was happening in the cosmic realm, that there was a scroll, and upon the scroll there were seals, and no one could open the seals to open the scroll. And then John looked, and upon the throne he saw a lion as if a slain lamb seated there. And he said, I looked, and I heard around the throne And the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped because they realized that there was no one who could defeat the ultimate enemy, Satan himself, and death in his power, but Christ. And Christ, by doing that at the cross, was exalted and said, I'm worthy. Do you recognize the beauty and worthiness of Christ to take on something that you can't take on yourself? How thankful you are when someone steps into your world and does that for you in a human way. I've used the illustration before, uh, but it is one that is so pertinent to me. When I was about to be destroyed by some big rednecks in the parking lot of West Charlotte uh, High School back in the late 19, middle 80s. And these guys were big and they were tough and they were country boys. And I was like, I'm dead And I heard this voice out of the shadows of one of my dear friends, Chris Hood, who was a very large African-American young man who could bench press a house. And he could do all these things. And he stepped out of the shadows. And he looked and he goes, Bill, you okay? And I was like, nope. (laughs) Opened my mouth a little bit too much. Kind of ran around here with these big redneck boys. And Chris stepped out. He says, I got your back. And those guys were like, hey, we're good. We're good, man. We're fine. No problem here. We don't want any trouble here. We're okay. And they got back in their pickup truck and hauled back to to the countryside. And I stood there with Chris. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Worthy are you of my praise in an earthly state. All he did was save me from getting beaten up. Christ has saved you from hell itself. He has taken away your fear of death. That when you face those enemies, you look to Christ and he says, I've got you. And you turn to him and go, worthy are you. He says, now in this life, serve me as king. Oh, really? I can't lie? Nope. Can't steal? Nope. Can't murder? gum it. You've forgotten his worthiness of what he has done on your behalf that you yourself couldn't do. You have either forgotten it or you're so arrogant that you think you can do it on your own. Christ's worthiness compels us to serve him in the fullness of our lives. Not perfectly, mind you, but at least a passion and a desire to do so. That's why we still have this table, because we don't do it perfectly. But we do it with a desire to honor our king. So he is the Lord of all things, the universal Lord. He is worthy of our praise And then when we recognize his worthiness, we fall in love with him more deeply. And so our love compels us to honor him in our obedience. That we love him. It becomes our greatest joy. John 15 says that your joy may be complete. Keep my commandments. Isn't that interesting? It's our greatest joy. It's our greatest love to obey and to follow him. We love because we have first been loved. If you love me, you keep my commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the greatest and the first of the commandments. And if his commandments, if following and serving this king seem burdensome to you, the problem isn't with his demands. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, John 5, 3. And his commandments are not burdensome. You recognize that? If you think it's burdensome to follow Christ, the problem isn't with with Christ. It's with us. 
Because we've forgotten that you're first loved. Maybe you've forgotten what you have been freed from and saved to. Maybe you only view it as positional and as Presbyterians sometimes that's, we look at justification and we go, I was lost, now I'm found. I was unrighteous, now I'm righteous. I was in bondage, now I'm free. It's a positional thing and that is true, but it is also ontological. It is you are changed. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus, created for good works in him. You are different than you were before you came to Christ as a person. You know that, right? You've still got your personality. Some need some working, but it's still your personality. But you're changed forever, not just positionally, but in this way. And you recognize that, and you go, I love you. And my love leads me to do these things on your behalf. And then also this love leads us to follow Christ for his glory. Let me ask you a question. Some of you may know the answer. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. People ask regularly, what's God's will for my life? What's the purpose for which God has created me? There it is. All throughout scripture, you were designed and created to bring glory to the Father. You're an object of his affection. And as he pours his glory and beauty into you, you reflect it back to him, but to the world around you. Peter says, let them so see your good works that they will glorify the day, glorify Christ in the day of visitation. That the world sees you and sees what you're doing and it brings glory to God. That you think on every moment, what am I about to do? And is what I'm about to do going to bring glory to the one who gave everything to me on the cross? If you were to ask that question before any action, would it change your actions maybe? Possibly? To go, okay, and what I'm about to do? God, is what I'm about to do going to bring glory and honor to your name? And so often we would just go, yep, probably don't need to do that. Probably shouldn't do that. Or maybe I should do that, but I need to have an attitude adjustment before I do that. So I'm going to pause before doing it to make it right before I head into it. The part of our motivation is we want to bring glory to God. We are creatures made in the image of this God to reflect his glory. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. How much? Oh, don't you hate that word? All. How much? All. Do the dishes. How many? All of them. Clean your room. How much of it? All of it. Drive the speed limit. How often? All the time. We don't like all. And God is saying it's an all thing. So we do these things because he's the Lord of the universe. Because it's our greatest joy and privilege. Because of our love that we have for the king. For the glory that he receives through us. But folks, let me tell you real quickly, there's going to be opposition to this. It's not easy to live for Christ within this world, is it? Have you experienced any of that? The reason I'm asking you this is because there's some around who think, it's just me. I'm absolutely and abjectly alone in the opposition that I'm feeling, so there must be something wrong with me. So have any of you ever experienced difficulty walking and standing faithfully for Christ in this world? Any of you? Look around. Keep your hands up. And look around. The people who don't have their hands up, avoid them. (laughs) 
Because if there's no opposition and there's no battle, you're probably not fighting the right fight. Satan looks at you and goes, man, no worry about that person. And that's a dangerous place, by the way. And so there is going to be opposition. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There's going to be difficulty. Here's part of the problem. The difficulty doesn't only come from outside the church. You are going to face difficulty and you are going to face opposition even within the church. And the arrows that come from behind are so often more painful than the arrows that come from in front. Because we don't like outliers. We don't like people who go too far out in front of us because they make us feel badly about ourselves. And so you go, what? come on. Quit with the whole radical Jesus stuff. Just come to church. Come to Bible study. We'll do our little thing. But don't go crazy on me. Don't go nuts on me here, and we want to bring them back in and rail them back in. Here's what I would love. I would love for our church to be a place where people can come and be encouraged because there's enough opposition to have it outside the church. That when we come into the church, it should be a place where you can go, I am struggling. Do you know how hard it is to remain sexually pure on a high school campus today? Do you know how difficult it is to make it through college today, standing for Christ? Do you know how difficult it is for your marriage to make it and to sing for Jesus and not just tolerate him? It is hard enough out there than to come into the church and when your world is crumbling a bit and you go, I'm really weak, and they go, something must be wrong with you. If you just had a little more faith versus just weeping together versus just saying, I know exactly what you mean. I'll walk with you through that. I'll be there. Let me point you back to the king. Let me give you the king's words again. Let me love you. Let me embrace you. Let me point you back to the table that tells you this great story. Folks, there's opposition. Let's hope that it's not opposition from within the church. So how do we live all of this? The power that we have comes from a number of sources, but I'll give you three. The resurrection power of Christ that's in you the Holy Spirit that's given to you, and the means of grace within the covenant church. The resurrection power. Christ's resurrection is the resurrection of the one who represents us, just as Adam represented. It's Christ rising from the grave. You see, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. Do you think it took a little power to raise Christ from the dead? I do. I think God had to speak and say, death, no more. And that same power that raised Christ from the dead is in you. Isn't that awesome? There's not too much that I say is really awesome. But that was really awesome, that in you is the same resurrection power that resurrected Christ from the dead. And if the scripture is true that says you will never be tempted beyond that which is normal to man, then you can say, okay, I'm tempted and this is hard. Oh, but I got a power source over here. And I'm not going to plug a little alkaline battery into this because my enemy is not flesh and blood, but it is the very principalities and powers of this world, my own flesh, Satan himself. And I need to plug into a resurrection power source that says you have what it takes through me. And your friends are going to look at you and go, you're weird. And Christians are going to go, resurrection power? When did you get Pentecostal? When did you go over to that side of people who get a little crazy? It's our hope, folks. It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead as the power that is alive in you. 
And then Christ said this, when I leave, I'm going to leave you the third person of the Trinity on your behalf, the Holy Spirit who is going to dwell within you. He is equal with God the Father and God the Son in power and in glory. And he isn't just flitting around in a garden somewhere, but he is powerful and in you. God Almighty in you. Isn't that awesome? I need to get a better word maybe. But I find that astounding. That God no longer lives within temples or tabernacles. But the Shekinah glory of God has come down and descended and lives within the heart and the life of the believer. And most of you don't recognize it. You don't know what you have because you've forgotten who you are. And then there's these things called means of grace that God gives us in the practical day-to-day of reading and studying the scriptures. Of listening to the preached word. We still believe in the power of the preached word. That God still speaks through the pulpits around the country. Around the world. That through prayer. That through singing the praises to God. Participating in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the fellowship of God's people. Are a way by which you can be strengthened and empowered to live the life that you have in Christ. Most of you live alone. Solitary lives. Prayerless lives. Bibleless lives, worshipless lives, and you wonder why you struggle. There's a very means by which God has given you to be strengthened in these things you have laid aside. Come into the church. Let the church be that for you. Let the fellowship of the saints be that for you. Folks, let's be that for one another in this church. And I'll end here at least. You see, this gives symmetry to our lives. That Jesus can't just be Savior and not Lord. He has to be both. It gives clarity. He's the Lord of all things, not some things within your life. And so a great exercise today would be to start looking through in an inventory of your life and finding those areas where you've determined, I'm not going to let him Lord on that place. Community. This is our place. This is where the saints dwell together. And we invite those from outside in to see these glorious things. And the counsel for our hearts from this simple statement that Jesus is Lord is this. You are serving something. The question is, what are you serving? And if it's not Christ, ask the question, how's it going? Is that king offering anything other than ultimately death. Because this king says to you, I give you freedom and life and abundance through my sacrifice. So which king are you serving? If you're serving Christ, if you are part of his kingdom, then you're invited to this table. You see, this table that we have here isn't a Presbyterian table. This isn't Hilton Head Presbyterian Church's table. This is Christ's table. And as Christ's table, the king's table, all of those who are part of his family, a part of his kingdom, are invited to come here. So if you've professed your faith in Christ, received him as Lord and Savior, you're invited to come to this table today, a means of grace to you, reminding you of the costliness of the king's love. I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. You can look at any president. There's never been a president within the United States of America who said this. I love this country so much that I'm going to lay down my life in its place. 
Presidents asked the country to serve their needs and agendas. Christ, the true king, said, let me serve you and give you my life. And so come to this table today. And as we come, we come with humility. So if you'll bow with me and pray, let's read together this prayer printed for you and on the screen. Father, hear our prayers. Before thy cross, I kneel and see the heinousness of my sin, my iniquity that causes thee to be made a curse, the evil that excites the severity of divine wrath. Show me the enormity of my guilt by the crown of thorns, the pierced hands and feet, the bruised body of my Savior. Thy blood is the blood of incarnate God. It's worth infinite, it's value beyond all thought. Father, hear our confessions and move towards your people in forgiveness and in hope and in restoring.